Africa by the Zanzi Youth Choir, a rendition of the song by Tata Vusi Masasela of the same title. Say Africa, wonderful, wonderful, wonderful rendition of itself, a wonderful song. Good evening, everybody. This is Song Ezomapete on The Viewpoint. It is indeed Tuesday today, the first day of June, Youth Month. So let's, of course, focus on youth aspects or rather let's emphasize the bias towards youth aspects not least of those things youth unemployment and the rising challenge occasioned by that it's a social catastrophe it's a socio-economic catastrophe when we talk about the real challenges young people face and it is my hope that at least for this month if for no other month for obvious reasons that we pay special attention to young people and of course in keeping with that we've got Dr. Cyan Brown, who's a medical doctor with a passion for helping build healthier, more inclusive, and more sustainable healthcare systems and communities. This evening, she is our guest for the Hashtag Tuesday Takeover in the context of Youth Month. So we most certainly do implore you to participate in the conversation with her and as she engages her guest after me about the issues they'll be talking to and about. Her profile, very briefly, she completed her medical training at Tucky's University of Pretoria and is currently doing a Master's in Public Health with a Global Health Specialization through King's College of London. Cyan is a Senior Atlantic Fellow at Dagano Health Equity, where her work focuses on the broader landscape connecting health and social justice. She is an advocate of the Sustainable Development Goals, SDGs, and is focused on the power of innovation and technology to make healthcare more accessible and equitable. I'm going to probe that question exactly how technology, particularly in South Africa's fragmented public health, as well as in many respects, private healthcare system is. Central to her work is the empowerment of women, and seven years ago, Cyan founded the Tux Res Women in Leadership Academy, which has seen over some 1,500 young women graduate from the program. Cyan, please tell us more about that very shortly. Finally, Cyan has been selected by the MNG Mail and Guardian as one of the top 200 young South Africans for her work in the health space and was also selected as one of 25 participants globally for the Young Sustainable Impact Social Innovation Project. Program, I beg your pardon. In her spare time, she's a hiker, enjoys good coffee, and no surprises, a good book. With all of that, that's quite a good story to tell. Wouldn't you agree, Dr. Brown? Good evening, Sangezo, and good evening to your listeners. Thank you for that very generous introduction and for having having me here tonight. I'm really delighted to be sharing with you and to be part of this. Much appreciated. Thank you so much. And the listeners would do well to engage you for the balance of this hour as you engage me and as when you engage your guest, Anesu, later on in the program. Here's something that struck me, particularly because we do have a strong focus on health, particularly on Mondays, but there's no harm in extending that conversation. More particularly when you talk about you're focused on the power of innovation and technology to make healthcare more accessible and equitable. What is your dream around that? Or what is the one thing that you're agitating for? Because the system as it is, from an innovation and technology perspective, is lacking and could quite easily have an opposite effect if innovation and technology was given some momentum. Absolutely. I think that's a really important issue, not just in the context of South Africa, but in many developing countries. And 
where there is huge health systemic health issues. So I think to be clear first, uh, what I mean by innovation and technology, I think a lot of people when they hear those words think high tech, artificial intelligence, um, you know, brand new technology. And whilst it does encompass that, it's also just the use of existing technology in ways that allows us to reach more people and make jobs easier to do. And so I think to answer your question, the one wish would be for our healthcare system to embrace existing technologies and innovations that could allow us to engage more with patients and make the system more effective and efficient. And there are many incredible innovations under the title of frugal innovation, which is essentially cheap, locally sourced, um, you know, really uh, easy to access innovations that have made massive differences. And so whilst part of it is technology, for instance, how WhatsApp has been a really good way to share helpful information around COVID and to mobilize societies around how do we get together to look after one another during COVID is a good example of using existing technology for the benefits of a health outcome. Mm-hmm. We also see frugal innovations. For instance, um, one of the things I'm looking at in my research is there are currently many surgical drills used in orthopedic surgery, which are very costly and not really affordable for most low and middle income countries. But we've had a brilliant team um, from Malawi and the UK develop a surgical drill innovation, which costs one two hundredth of a price of a regular drill, which enables a lot more theatres to have this drill and thus do a lot more operations. And so... I think it can come in in many ways, how innovation can shape what we use, Mm. more cost-effective materials, and how technology cannot make it overly complex and actually serve to amplify inequity, but how we can use the technology we have in a way that brings more people into the conversation and Mm -hmm. helps them be active participants in their own healthcare journey. I think that's, for me, really where the power lies. On, on that point, on that point, insofar as it relates to without even being too dramatic by way of innovation, so to speak, just even collecting public information, coordinating it and making it accessible. For instance, one would think, generally speaking, the information that the Department of Health would have on Songhezo should in many respects be readily available to the Department of Health, vice versa, because that information is key. It tracks my movements, it tracks my health care, it tracks my status, those persons to whom I am a next of kin to, vice versa. Not just from a criminal justice perspective as well, with that information being available, but one would hope that there are innovations around technology that at a public health facility, even private, the mere knowledge of my ID tells the healthcare space that I would be transacting with at that time everything that is relevant for me. Not me having to fill out forms. Not me having to fill out forms while I'm injured or sick or not in a position to otherwise fully engage that. And also to be able to, in real time, get a full medical record of me. It is trusted. It's from a credible source. And that information is available to all government departments for their respective needs. Are we in any way getting closer to that sort of dispensation to curtail the time, the administrative time of accessing, in this instance, healthcare facilities? 
Thank you for that question. I think it's it is a complicated issue, and it's it's not a blanket answer when you think about South Africa. So we do have certain provinces like the Western Cape where we are seeing the rollout of electronic healthcare records and a lot more automation of the processes you speak of in hospitals where everything can be on an electronic system. But in other provinces, we see we're still relying on paper records and patients still have to fill in the same forms at every hospital, at every clinic, every time they go. And so there's there's huge disparity within the country. So I'm not going to give a blanket answer. But what I will say is I think we are slowly realizing its importance and we're making initial moves to to move towards an electronic healthcare record system. But we have to realize that it's that in and of itself is not a linear journey because it is quite a complicated thing when we think about data privacy and then we think about if we do develop these records where, as you say, could link to many other departmental, uh, government departments, that uh, it could have a lot of unintended consequences if that information had to fall into the wrong hands. So it is paramount that we start thinking about how to upgrade our systems, but we have to do it with appropriate levels of care and ethical consideration such that it doesn't backfire later down the line. And we have to also do it in a way that, you know, patients feel brought along with the journey and it's not one day they arrive at the clinic and there's a whole new system which is uh, is scary and intimidating. And at the same time, we train healthcare workers to, to use this in a way that really uh, makes them more efficient and not less efficient because the introduction of Mm-hmm. technologies into hospitals often backfires if it isn't done with a buy-in of staff and if it isn't really designed with the healthcare professionals in mind so, in terms of the process. So we are getting there, but I think it is quite a complex process and will take a lot of work to really ensure it's human-centered and done in a way that um, enables the process to be better for everyone. There's always that conversation or that argument that it must be a human focus or human-centric approach. I, I absolutely don't um, dis, discard that. But one from time to time might feel that with global developments the way that they are, the reality is nonetheless technology has a central role to play in the development and evolution of humanity, broadly speaking, but of course responsibly employed. That then takes me to my next question. To the extent that you are engaging this subject as you read for your master's at King's College London in public health, what then are some of those tensions between a human-centric approach adopting, if you will, the developments in technology in medical care? Well, I think one of the big challenges is that when we think about the table at which the decision makers sit who design these technologies. Firstly, we aren't seeing a diversified demographic. If we, if we look at the coders, if we look at those who pioneered a lot of technology, a lot of the time it is skewed towards younger white males, which is a problem if we're de- designing human-centered technology that needs to serve everyone and every demographic. And I think the second thing is that without that diversification just of demographic, but also of the type of expertise that's really valued when we go about intersecting the health and technology system. It shouldn't just be those, you know, data engineers and computer scientists and medical specialists that are at the table, but we need patient voices. We need community healthcare workers. We need the people who will interface in an administrative role in the healthcare systems. And we can't really design human-centered technology if we aren't focusing on including everyone who's an end user at that table. 
But I do have hope that, you know, this, this, this push towards human-centered design is starting to affect mainstream technology in health. And we've realized that we're, we're wasting a lot of time and resources if we're trying to think about how to make healthcare systems more efficient or more optimal if we aren't really considering who that optimization benefits and what their opinion is. And so I do think there's progress. And I think with my research that I've done around frugal innovation in healthcare thus far, it's really shown to me that the more time you spend really empathizing with users and communities mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. understanding the issues, the more we can ensure that innovations can benefit health in a way that's really contextually appropriate mm-hmm. and has the community at the center. We're in conversation with Dr. Cyan Brown, medical doctor who is reading for her master's in public health with a global health specialization through King's College of London. We're going to engage some of her public work in the sense that she's an ambassador for the SDGs. She has founded Tuxres Women in Leadership Academy, which has in the time of its life seen some 1,500 young women graduate from the program. She has been honored by the Mail and Guardian as one of the top 200 young South Africans for her work, particularly in the health space, and especially more so as one of 25 participants globally for the Young Sustainable Impact Social Innovation Program, a prestigious honor. No end, Dr. Cyan Brown. For those who want to participate, please do call Johannesburg, 714-2006. Please keep your comments short because we are running out of time, but at the same time, make sure you exhaust what it is that is in your mind as we engage. Dr. Cyan Brown, the voice note facility doesn't change, 0614-104-107. Under a minute, no background noise. Straight to the point, preferably as well polite. Doc, final question then as we look to wrap up my engagement with you and we then listen to you engage your guest very shortly. Your public work is worth some reckoning, but not least because you occupy global positions as well as local foundations that you have started. What informs your passion for the public, particularly when you say you are fighting for a more inclusive and more sustainable healthcare system and community at large? Thanks, Ngezo. I think for me, it was a quick realization as soon as I entered medical school that I really love working with patients and making a difference, but I'm also very curious about how we work at a macroscopic level and we tackle some of the social determinants of health. And and that's a lot of where where my social justice work has has come from, is realizing Mm. that if we can focus on things like gender equality and education and building community mobilization around important issues, the downstream effects is that a lot fewer of these people would eventually land up in the healthcare system in need of support at some time in their lives. And that we see that there's quite an interconnected relationship between a lot of these social determinants and health. And so I'm really interested in how my work can connect with at a community level because mm-hmm. I think it's quite easy for medical professionals to to only focus on the patient before them and not at the community level. Mm. And moreover, I'm very interested at how we focus at getting the most marginalized groups and the voices that haven't been heard in these issues, how we allow those voices to be amplified when thinking about, you know, how do we increase gender equality in South Africa? How do we really ensure that everyone has equal opportunity to get an education to 
start a community initiative, to grow up in a, a safe environment, because I think so many of these central issues are are key in healthcare eventually. Mm-hmm. And so that's largely informed my work, and I've had the immense privilege of being part of Takano, which is a health equity NGO, yes, which focuses on including the voices of activists, academics, media, a large variety, a multidisciplinary team, all focused on the issue of health equity in South Africa. And that's really given me a different lens and enriched my lens on bringing together a lot of different people from different backgrounds and working in a, in a, in a collaborative way to solve some of these issues. And that's where I find a lot of my passion and purpose and what I really, really enjoy and hope to contribute in my own way to mm. South African society. I have to ask this question, and I thought my previous question would have been the last, but I have been taken by your response to that because when you talk about outlying communities and voices that are not heard, invariably in this context it is because there isn't a fair representation of sexes, stroke, gender. In other words, the female question is not nearly attended to with the kind of urgency any society that wishes to advance is, in fact, being attended to. Second, the question of communication and how that communication is packaged, particularly through language. The mainstream public health care information that is out there, unfortunately, is still largely in English and uses, thirdly, platforms that are largely unavailable to persons. For instance, how do we get persons from marginalized anywhere in the country to interface with technology in a language that is foreign with them and then still expect community participation with participation comes active engagement and with hopefully those two being present you get the kinds of outcomes you desire it is my fair assessment that absent a packaging of information using media that is readily available in those communities making allowance for development the kinds of outcomes and the visions that you have in this climate, in many respects, will be stillborn. I think that's a fair assessment in some climates, and I completely agree with you that if, if there are marginalized voices who, who don't resonate firstly on how information is packaged or uh, the language in which mm. it's packaged, they're not going to want to join in table and actually discuss these issues, let alone use technology that far. So I think my approach to this would be a layered one, to say, I agree with this, and we can't tackle it all at once. Mm. I completely concede our health messaging in South Africa needs to have a greater diversity in terms of languages, but also in terms of, you know, who it reaches. I think health communication can often, often be very stigmatizing and often send messages of fear instead of inviting people to the table. So that's the first thing. And I think the second thing is I personally don't think you're going to engage marginalized voices through necessarily the use of technology on certain issues. I think this is about building person-to-person relationships, about building safe spaces. It's about building representation and you know, organizations where the same inclusivity is modeled at leadership and modeled at every level and not just, you know, of marginalized voices, but of, of the many demographics and uh, intersectional identities that we see in South Africa. And I think when you have that relationship, then we can start mobilizing communities. And only after that, we can think about in what way do existing platforms aid this work. And, you know, for some communities and for some issues, they absolutely won't. And then instead of chasing after it, we say, okay, 
what are the tools we have that we can use to be productive in this space. But in other, in other issues, say the mental health issue, which we're about to discuss, mm. people going online actually is hugely beneficial because some of these spaces can be anonymized, can be safe, can be not as time intensive when it comes to accessing resources as they going into get professional help. And so I think it depends on the issue in the community. And, and that's how I would approach it because I think we have a long way to go to be able to getting every voice we need when we talk about health issues. And my sincere hope is that after the pandemic, we have an honest conversation with ourselves as South Africans um, about the type of messaging that we sent and who did we exclude and who did we include and what stigma was sent and how did we reach people and, you know, who who was actually... Um, to whom was the effect detrimental for us to be sending messages sometimes that only uh, sort of talked about one paradigm or one knowledge mm. or one way of thinking. And I and I really hope from that is born a, a different generation of health communication in, in South Africa, such that when we speak about community mobilization and health, that um, that we have a completely different approach. I think our approach is the same, only where I might slightly differ is I think some of that information and IP is readily available so we can actually adapt as we move along for the purposes of getting that hindsight, if you like, so that as the pandemic itself evolves and we evolve around it and sort of prove our agility around it so we can learn, for instance, from the lessons of the last year. I mean, purely from a procurement perspective, we have much to get right in this country. I don't take away anything that you have said, though, Dr. Cyan Brown. Thank you so much. We're going to have to take a short ad break now because that was, in the words of my colleague, Kathy Motlatlana, your guest is brilliant. You so refreshing, she says. I couldn't agree more. 2033, after the break, Dr. Cyan Brown with her guest after this. SAFM. Good evening to all our listeners. Thank you so much for joining. And I hope this is going to be a fruitful conversation. On the line tonight, we've got Anesu Mbijo and we've got Brendan Savory, both of which are doctors who featured in last week's documentary launch, Acquired Implosion. Let me tell you a bit about them. So, Anessa is an adventurous, passionate, and driven 28-year-old young woman and medical doctor, currently working as a yoga teacher and small business owner in Johannesburg, South Africa. She currently teaches both studio-based yoga classes and private yoga classes, and she is focused on ensuring that every student learns to accept themselves and their body fully, aiming to enable students to see themselves in their true image, perfect, whole, and complete. Inesu is also the founder and co-owner of the Nest Space and a growing social media influencer focused on ESOS and sustainability, the plant-based lifestyle, and a holistic health lifestyle. Welcome, Inesu. Our second guest is Brendan Savory, who is an anesthetics medical officer working in the state sector. During his undergraduate studies in the University of Edwatersrand, he focused on serving at various student bodies including the South African Medical Students Association, and he was instrumental in establishing the WITS Students Bioethics Society as founding chairperson. He is also an advanced trauma life support instructor and has a diploma in anesthetics in the state sector. He is involved in the training of interns and has regular exposure to the experiences to those of other junior doctors. He's currently serving as the director of the Foundation for the Person and the Family, a faith-based NGO 
that is involved in matters of relationship building and sexuality amongst youth. Welcome to the both of you, and thank you for joining me. It is so great to join you tonight, Sian. Thanks so much for having us. An absolute privilege, Sian. Thank you very much for having us here. So let's get straight into the conversation. Last week, we were really privileged to have over 200 people from around the globe attend the launch of the documentary, A Quiet Implosion, in which you both featured and shared your stories powerfully about your experience as healthcare workers and how that has impacted your emotional health and your mental health. Can you tell us a little bit around what has the reaction been and what is your hope that this documentary would catalyze? Let's start with you, Anesu. Thanks so much, Sian. Um, wow. I mean, in addition to the number of attendees that we had to the live event, I've just been, you know, greeted with so many messages of um, young doctors um, really expressing that they have had similar experiences, wanting to watch the documentary retrospectively, and that's been extremely heartwarming. Um, I think especially when dealing with issues of mental health, um, our healthcare sector has a long way to go and there's still a huge stigma around um, mental health and the different issues one faces, and even more so in the medical fraternity where, you know, some of the themes we discussed in the documentary about self-sacrifice, about a silencing in the workplace, um, usually lends young doctors or doctors in general to feel like they can't express themselves or tell their stories when it comes to the effect that the profession has had on their well-being. So I think to answer your question, my hope is just that this documentary acts as a springboard to, to get more and more doctors speaking out, expressing their truth in terms of how um, you know, the healthcare sector and, and that working environment affects them their relationships, their, their physical well-being, their mental well-being. And I think the more that we have um, healthcare professionals, you know, even beyond doctors, nurses, allied health professionals speaking out about this issue, uh, that's when we're more likely to have policy and legislative change, logistical changes being put into place in hospitals. So I'm really optimistic. Thank you, Anesu. I really appreciate that feedback, and, and that is also my hope. What about your thoughts, Brendan? For me, it was very positive to listen to the engagement, um, especially that has come forth from um, academia and more uh, persons of influence uh, within the medical spheres. That makes me very hopeful that these voices are actually listening to the, the pleas and the cries of some of the people on the ground, the situations that are there, and that's has been uh, really positive and really affirming that uh, we can go about creating a, an environment, especially for our junior doctors, to work in, a, in an environment that is more wholesome and less toxic and that can allow them to cope with the difficult clinical situations that are often faced by all healthcare workers and the particular mental strain that this places, especially on interns, concerts and other junior doctors, and help to alleviate that, that mental burden on them uh, so that we can all care for our patients and our communities in a far more wholesome uh, and loving way um, and care, cater to our communities in that way. Thank you, Brendan. Thank you for that answer. I'd just like to remind our listeners that the lines are open if you'd like to call in and share your, your thoughts with us. The, the line number is 011 714 
2006. We'd love to hear your views. So I'd like to bring into this point the broader topic around health equity, because for some people listening who maybe aren't a doctor or who aren't directly involved in in, in the healthcare worker's life, they may think, well, this is just an issue for doctors. And, you know, they're already a privileged group of people, which we have to acknowledge, being able to to get that education and to be in a position that is well paid. So, you know, why, why is this a broader society issue? And I, I think it's really important that we bring in the health equity perspective here, that this is not an issue we are campaigning for in, singular, in singularity of only health doctors, but we're thinking about all healthcare workers in the system as a whole, because at the end of the day, uh, I quoted this statistic last week at the launch, but Williams and Sayer did research in 2000, which showed that when a doctor has worked for more than between 20 to 25 hours continuously, which is the normal in South Africa, that they have a psychomotor performance decrease equivalent to that of someone with a blood alcohol level of 0.1%. And to put that into perspective, so our previous legal driving limit in South Africa was 0.08%. And so what that really means is that the doctor who's operating on patients at hour number 25 is endangering the health of the patient and endangering themselves by being part of the system, which just pushes them to the limit. So I just encourage you, both of you, to share your thoughts on how this issue is so much bigger than just about doctors. Such a great point, Cyan. You know, um, like you said, it's so important to have a broader perspective on this issue, especially when we're looking at the well-being of our healthcare workers in general um, across the board. And, you know, when we start to look at the dynamics of our healthcare sector in South Africa, because of our high burden of, you know, disease, of communicable diseases, we usually have a really alarming ratio for the number of patients that we have per doctor, per nurse, or per healthcare uh, healthcare worker. Usually a a ratio of either one to over 400 patients um, for each doctor or for each nurse. And when you start to look at this and, you you know, you take into consideration the, the statistic that you just quoted, that our doctors are essentially functioning at the at the level that is unacceptable for driving and and operating on patients um, and having to make life changing decisions about their patients and and their healthcare journey, you start to realize that this is really a domino effect. Um, and apart from you know the sleep deprivation, we also have doctors who are experiencing you know levels of depression, levels of anxiety. So even when they are not on call and just functioning you know during normal business hours. Already then, we can attribute high levels of stress, um, high degrees of burnout to making inaccurate decisions or, or, you know, to to making questionable decisions in the workplace. And so when we think about protecting our healthcare workers, that really translates to protecting our patients and therefore our communities as well. So this is a much broader issue than just looking at, you know, a group of doctors in isolation from the communities that they serve. Absolutely. And Brendan, what are your views on this? Yeah, I, I can't help but, uh, but emphasize what Anessio says, that um, ultimately the, we're dealing with a healthcare system that is severely overburdened and it places a very particular pressure point on the healthcare professionals that are responsible support for supporting um, this healthcare system. 
Um, it brings to mind a sort of a, a story I, I, I heard from a, a colleague that I was chatting with last week. Um, you know, so many of our uh, people in our community, uh, when they confront our healthcare system, they, they see the, the depravity of, of it sometimes, you know, um, often long patient queues, uh, patients sleeping on, on the floor and things like that. And this particular colleague of mine had worked in a, uh, was working in a hospital where his hospital had been featured in social media for exactly these kind of situations, patients sleeping on the floor and things like that. Um, and he highlighted, he said, you know, as terrible as that is, this is often what people see when they go to the hospital. They see these terrible situations sometimes, but they don't necessarily see the healthcare workers, the nurses, the doctors, the cleaners that are busting a gut just to serve the patients that they can in whatever de um, depraved situation it may be, unfortunately. Um, and so that's where the, the situation of health equity comes in that the healthcare worker is trying to prop up the situation, this, um, um, this service, um, and, and what affects the healthcare worker really does affect the community, uh, vice versa. The interplay there is very important. Thank you, Brandon. On that note, I'd love to hear what our listeners have to say about the issue. Just a reminder, we are on Tuesday Takeover, where we, we are discussing a quiet implosion, the issue of healthcare worker burnout in South Africa where we are privileged to have Dr. Anetu Mbijo, a medical doctor currently working as a yoga teacher at Freedom Yoga and founder and co-owner of The Nest Space, and Dr. Brendan Savory, director of the Foundation for the Person and the Family, an anesthetics medical officer in the state system, and an advanced trauma life support instructor. So if you would like to send us a WhatsApp voice note, you can send that to 614 Please keep your voice notes under one minute with no background noise, and we would love to know your, your thoughts. Time is not on our side, but we do have time for two quick calls, and I'd love for healthcare workers as well as non-healthcare workers to, to call in and share your views around this important issue, because as we've just discussed, it's not just an issue of healthcare workers. It's an issue of broader community and our healthcare system, and if we are going to actually deal with this issue, we need to think how it affects everyone in the system, because essentially the, issue, the, the message we are trying to get across with this documentary and the important work that's being done is that unless we have a diverse group of stakeholders at the table, not just doctors, all healthcare workers, media, academics, universities, um, artists, civil society, we're not going to be able to solve this, this problem and figure out how we can build a healthcare system that is more dignified for everyone involved. And, and so it's so important to get these diverse voices at the table. I, I would love for our guests to answer tonight. So this isn't the first documentary that's been made about these issues in South Africa. And I don't think it will be the last. And our documentary didn't explicitly focus on the shock factor. We didn't cover a shift. We didn't show the trauma. We just shared deep, powerful narratives. And, you know, I think it's so important to, to be able to share important stories. And so we have only got five minutes remaining, but I'd love for both of you to quickly share how you hope these conversations can shift narrative 
when it comes to the stories we can all tell ourselves. Because I think a lot of the time healthcare workers romanticize these issues or will try to be a hero or stay silent. And and so what is your impression of using storytelling as an advocacy tool and how is it that you think narrative is going to shift slowly in and without, within and outside of, of hospitals? Brendan, what is your view here? Wow. Um, yeah, I, I thank you for the question. So I think that to an effect, you, you are right. There, there's sort of there's a, um, like a macho mentality by which we can sometimes retrospectively look at um, the the difficulty of our work, you know, like, oh, I, you know, yeah, I did this shift and I came out okay. And, you know, um, so this is the way it is. You know, this is your badge of honor. This is your um, mark of initiation as a, as a medical practitioner. This is what you must do uh, in order to be fit for the grades to be a doctor. And I think that in telling these stories, in unpacking some of the diff- difficulties of it, in, in going through a shift that is so long and so arduous that it is probably a human rights violation, not just to the individual, but to the communities they serve, in changing these narratives, maybe we could change the culture in which we actually practice our medicine um, to be more caring for the individuals involved in them, more sensitive to these stories, um, to, to the healthcare workers that are under significant mental strain, um, to be able to to um, change that way of communicating with each other, not wear this as a, ba- a badge of honor, um, but instead, uh, you know, change this culture and and work towards a system where we can more sustainably serve our communities, serve the people around us in a way that doesn't harm ourselves in the process. Thanks, Brian, for those thoughts. Before Inesu shares her thoughts, we're going to head to an ad break. And uh, just to remind our listeners, I'm Simon Brown, the producer of the documentary A Quiet Implosion, talking about humanizing healthcare workers and what that has to do with health equity in South Africa. So we're going to head to an ad break, and when we get back, we'll hear from Anesu. SAFM, leading the conversation. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. On SAFM. Welcome back to all our listeners and thank you for joining for the Tuesday Takeover where I am Siam Brown and we're talking about humanizing the healthcare workers with Brendan Savory and Anesu Mbijo. And before the break, we had asked Anesu to share her thoughts on what role does storytelling have to play in advocacy and how are we hoping to shift narratives about what is normalized in the health in the healthcare system in South Africa. And so Inesu, what are your thoughts on this issue? Enjoyed about the documentary, as you said, is that it was really about personal stories. And all of us can relate to being told stories at some form, you know, at some part in our lives. And the whole idea around telling a story is getting your listener, whoever is listening to your story, to really re- be able to relate to what it is that you're saying and to be able to put themselves into your shoes. So, you know, when we're talking in this documentary, we're talking as people's children, we're talking as, as people's partners, as people's siblings. You know, the nurse who is suffering from burnout is somebody's mother, somebody's aunt. 
Um, and so these topics that can sometimes seem very far away from home, um, I think can be brought closer by us personalizing our stories, by us showing that as healthcare professionals, we are still humans. We, are, we still have emotions. We still have dreams and hopes. And we are still fragile. You know, we, we um, are not infallible. We, our, our energy is not infinite. Um, and, you know, as the pandemic has shown, we are not immune to what um, other human beings around us um, suffer and, and, and the conditions that they are, they are put into. So my hopes is that by telling these personal stories, people will realize that this is not an issue that, you know, is far away in the hospitals, in the clinics, uh, in the rural areas. This is an issue that would affect your household. It is an issue that affects our communities as a whole from the individual level and it's my hope that by sharing these very personal stories that we will trigger the conversation a little bit more and really get people to relate to this issue um, as to how it connects to them. Thanks, Anesu. And, and, you know, you saying it was a vulnerable step to share these stories, I think uh, we really do just need to acknowledge you and Brendan for having the bravery and courage to, to share so powerfully what what this world has done to you on so many levels and and not just in a sense of venting but really in a sense of both being honest but also pointing us towards solution and so thank you so much for both being willing to share and I'd like to remind you if there's any young medical students or doctors on the line tonight who are struggling with mental health you can call the toll-free discovery medical students and young doctors helpline on 0800 323323 or visit za where you will find a lot of resources. And if you'd like to watch the documentary, please go to www.sadag.org where you can find our three-part docu-series, A Quiet Implosion, covering some of what we spoke about tonight. And hopefully you'll be encouraged to join in this conversation. There is also a link to a Google form if you'd like to be a part of a working group where we can co-create solutions about this issue. And just a reminder for those only joining us now, we're at the end of our session talking about how we can humanize healthcare workers and a little bit about the mental health impact of being a healthcare worker in South Africa's state healthcare system and what we can do about this and what solutions we can look forward to. We were honored tonight to be joined by Dr. Inesu Mbijo, who's a medical doctor currently working as a yoga teacher at Freedom Yoga and the founder and co-owner of the Nest Space, as well as Dr. Brendan Savory, director of the Foundation for the Person and Family, an aesthetics medical officer and an advanced trauma life support instructor. And I am Simon Brown, the producer of the documentary, A Quiet Implosion, a doctor and a public health activist in South Africa. I thank you all so much for joining in this conversation. I hope it's been valuable. valuable. I hope it's resonated. And thank you to our guests for sharing so vulnerably, beautifully, and with both a good sense and tension of the reality and as well as the optimism that we find in thinking about the solutions. So thank you both for joining, and over to you, Songezo. 
I'm tempted to go on a soliloquy uh, because I don't want to give you any more airtime than you have enjoyed, just in case my job might be on the line. So excellent <laughs> a job you have done this, Sian, and of course I extend my gratitude indeed to Anesu and Brandon. We do have, what, two and a half, three minutes to go, so I really just do want to touch on, if you like, the work of a quiet implosion and really how mental health and and fortunately now it has received if you like an international platform through sport in the withdrawal from the french open of naomi naomi osaka following what she says she has anxiety she's suffered from depression she really doesn't enjoy facing the world's press and it has had a negative impact on her mental health and if we can just take those two words the importance thus of taking mental health seriously, almost being selfish about it for exactly that purpose of putting oneself first before anything else. This is as good a time for the world at large to sit up and take notice that however invincible certain personalities or professions in this case might appear or be perceived to be, there's an inherent vulnerability in those persons as they are with anybody else. And a quiet implosion does the work of addressing this challenge. It's not something to be proud of that doctors have 20, 30, sometimes longer hour shifts on call at the coalface of a pandemic that, especially this time last year, nobody knew much about, and they still had to be there almost as if it's business as usual. This is then as timely a time to have this discussion on mental health. Absolutely. And I think I I saw those tweets from Naomi Osaka today. And, you know, when I read them, I thought, sure, uh, she is just human, as you say, like all of us. And she was so courageous to share the reality of what she experiences. And in line with what you said, Tungezo, I think the more people do this, the less it will seem selfish to take care of your mental health. And the more it will actually just seem like a normal, habitual part of our everyday life where we can speak honestly, where we can set boundaries, and where we don't romanticize and 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 pretend to be heroes, whatever role we have. And so I really hope that this does open up narratives, safe spaces, and, and spark conversation. And it's been wonderful getting to speak about these issues in a way that I, I really hope will encourage more healthcare workers and people outside of the profession to to join in on the conversation in an open way to be proactive about their mental health. You'll have to go a long, long way to find a medical doctor so adept and comfortable in being a radio talk show host as Dr. Cyan Brown, Senior Atlantic Fellow at Takano Health Equity, has been. Cyan, for your time and everything else, thank you so much. Thank you, Songezo, and thank you, Amanda, in the newsroom, Phineas, our tech, the technical producer, and the wonderful Lesejo, who guided me.